0: We're going to read the Bible together now, so if you've got your Bible there with you, turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Uh, otherwise you'll find it on the screen. So let's read that together. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. But you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister, the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Rosie. Thanks, Ross. It was uh, a good reminder today that this is the shortest day of the year. I don't know what Ross was talking about when he was saying he'd packed his pajamas. I think he's wearing his pajamas today with that funny, which we can all appreciate anyway. I mean, we've all wanted to do that, watch church in our pajamas. Now we get the chance to do that, but not for long, which is a good thing. Hey, we're going to uh, pray again, and then we'll look at this passage. Let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we have this chance uh, to look at your word. Lord, these are not just words of a a guy, of a human. These are the living words of the living God. And so we pray, Lord, that as we hear this, that you would help us to have ears to hear, to have hearts to understand what you're saying to us. And we pray, Lord, that you would challenge us and that you would change us and that wherever we are right now, that you would convict us and move us into the people that you've called us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how we understand uh, the connection between what I believe and what I do um, is kind of an interesting thing to think about. In fact, lots of people have lots of different ideas about this particular topic. In fact, lots of different religions have lots of different ideas of this connection between what I believe and what I do. Um, In fact, I was talking to my neighbor the other day, and she was saying that um, the only person she knew who claimed to be a Christian was the Jehovah's Witness that knocked on her door. Now that's kind of sad in and of itself, but the reason is because when it comes to that connection between faith and works, for Jehovah's Witness, they believe that you're not just saved by what you believe, but you're saved by what you do. And preaching is a key action that you do. And so that's why they door knock and are at bus stations and, and, and you see them around. And so I asked her in this conversation, my neighbor, I asked her what she believes. She's a, I believe a Hindu. And I said, Well well, how do you understand that connection between what you believe and what you do? And, and she said for her and her family, they try and do as many loving things as they can because their understanding of it is if they do good, then God's going to give them good back. And so, you know, they're, they're lovely neighbors. They, they do that. I see that in practice. But this is kind of a, a version of karma, similar to Buddhism in many ways, that if you do good, then you'll get good back. See, it's interesting. Lots of different people have lots of different ideas about this. And, and this is actually true within the walls, the confines of Christianity as well. Lots of people have ideas about this connection between what I do and and what I believe. And really, there's kind of two equal and opposite unhelpful ideas that often we land on. The first is we can, in this space, overemphasize works. This idea that actions are all that matter. Now, you know, we might not say that explicitly, we might, but it's this idea that I am saved by what I do. For some of us, you know, it's not explicit. It's more subtle. It's this idea that I'm not saved, but God definitely loves me more because I do the right stuff. Then you have the opposite and the kind of equal unhelpful extreme, which is that works don't matter. You know, this idea that since Jesus saves me and since I'm saved by what he's done, then I can do whatever I want. This is definitely my experience growing up and, and where I resonated with this idea that I was free to do whatever I wanted to do. I had a license to be free and do that because Jesus has saved me. And both of those positions are equally unhelpful and equally dangerous. And so as we come to God's word this morning, I guess the question we want to ask is, how do we understand this connection between what I believe and what I do? How do we make sense of this? Of this, And, and what's on the line here if we get this wrong? Well, as we enter 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the passage Rosie read out for us before, we see Paul speak into this space about this connection between what we believe and what we do. And as we pick it up, notice in these first couple of verses, Paul start off with this idea of what motivates us. We read it from chapter 4 verse 1. He says this, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So, Paul here begins, as we try and wrestle with this connection between faith and works, he begins by what motivates us, by what moves us into why we do what we do. And he says, Live a life that pleases God. He's talking about your actions here. Now, on the surface, when you read that, live a life that pleases God, it sounds like what we do can earn a favor from God right? Like on the surface, that's what it feels like. And, and we just said that was an equal and unhelpful position to, to view that, that somehow what I do can earn me favor or love from God. So how do we understand this? You know, how do we make sense of, of what he's saying This, how do we live a life that pleases God in a helpful way, in a biblical way? Well, we, we got to remember that everything that Paul is saying here is on the back of what he's already said. You know, so if you've joined us here for the first time, we're entering into chapter 4. And before chapter 4, there's three chapters of 1 Thessalonians. And in this, what Paul has done, he's he's established what we believe. You know, throughout many letters that Paul writes, the first half of the book is what you believe. It's, It's establishing your faith. And then the second half of the letter reminds the church of what they do. You see this in all sorts of books that Paul writes. Romans does this. Lots of them do this. This is the same. In Thessalonians, the first three chapters establish what you believe. And, and we see this. You see, in chapter 1, remember, we looked at how when Paul came, he spoke the gospel, and he celebrates that this church believed the gospel, the message of Jesus, his death and resurrection, that the gospel came not just as words, but with power. And in believing in the gospel, they know that they're saved. We saw in chapter 2, when Paul came, he came and he spoke the gospel. The message, the gospel is the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. He spoke it not with flattery. We see that in verse 5. He didn't use flattery. He didn't put on a mask to cover up greed. He just spoke it as what it is, the message of how you're saved. Jesus' death and resurrection, it's trust in that alone. Then we saw last week in chapter 3. That when Timothy comes back, they're celebrating their faith and love. In fact, he says, in the middle of trials and temptations, they can really live because of verse 8, for now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. You see, what saves us is our trust in Jesus' death and resurrection alone. That's what gets us in, right? It's it's not what we do. It's what Jesus has done, and it's faith and it's trust in Him alone. That's what saves us. And and Paul spent three chapters establishing this. So if that's what saves us, then what's he saying in chapter 4? What does it mean to live a life that pleases God? How do we understand what he's getting at here? Because it certainly sounds like what I do can earn some sort of favor or love. But I think when we think about this, there's helpful imagery that helps us understand this. And it's not just imagery, it's actually a a reality of our relationship with God. You see, in the Bible, when we are saved, we're not just saved from sin. We're also adopted. We're adopted into the family of God. Now, Paul, in the first three chapters, and actually throughout this whole letter of Thessalonians, he refers to this a number of times, but it's not ever explicit. It's just kind of implicit. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 1, he said, I'm writing to the church in God the Father. Over and over again, he refers to this church as their brothers and sisters. There's this understanding from Paul. It's it's assumed here that when this church believed the message of Jesus, his death and resurrection, that they didn't just believe it. They're not just saved from sin, but they're also adopted into the family. We have a God that loves us, cares for us as children, and he invites us to call him Father. Now, here's why this is helpful. It helps us understand... How we can live a life that pleases God. So it's kind of like this. Um, For me, when I was growing up, uh, like I said, I had that attitude that I I was free to do whatever I want, and um, so I wasn't the easiest teenager growing up. Uh, You know, if you knew me back then, you're probably nodding, saying yes and amen, because it it wasn't an easy thing to love me when when I was a teenager. and my parents did an amazing job uh, in loving me in that time. But there, there was this one season of our life, like I can't even tell you when it was. There's was this one season when um, we needed in our house to move bricks from the backyard to the front yard. It was just a job that, you know, the family had to do. And uh, you know, so backyard to the front yard in our house, it wasn't that far. But for me as a teenager, right, like I would whinge about everything. I didn't want to do anything, let alone move bricks. Right, that, that is not a great job to do. Now, when it comes to my relationship with my dad, okay, so my relationship, that that's fixed. You know, that, that's fixed. You know, nothing's going to change that I'm his son. And when it came to moving the bricks, you know, dad didn't say to me, Ben, if you don't do this, you're out of the family, right? He, he didn't say, this, this is it for you. <laughs> this is your last shit. He could have, right? Would have been justified to say, that. but he didn't say, this is it for you. You're out of the family if you don't do this. Nor did he say... If you don't do this, I'm going to find someone else who will. And I'm going to bring them into the family and adopt them as my own son, and you're out and they're in. No, the, the relationship with my dad's fixed, but he did ask me to move the bricks. Now, one day, I don't know why, um, we'll call it grace, but one day I actually went out and moved some bricks. Now, in my mind, you know, I was doing it all day. It was probably five minutes, right? I probably moved five bricks. That was it from the back to the front. But, but I remember this experience afterwards, that, that after I did that, Dad came in and said to me um, that he was so thankful that I moved those bricks. In fact, he actually said, because I don't know why I did it with a good attitude, but I did. And he said, you know, it actually filled me with joy. It made me happy to see you act as a part of the family. And I'm so grateful for that. You know, I, I made my dad happy for that moment. Maybe it was five minutes out of all the teenage years for me. But you see, this, this picture is so helpful, I think, because when it comes to us and God, it's similar. You, you know, in that moment, as I was moving the bricks, my relationship wasn't changing. The status was fixed. My worth was fixed. My identity as a son in the family was fixed. And yet I had that ability with my actions to please my dad. This is helpful with us and God. You see, our relationship as a son, as a daughter, it's fixed. You know, when we put our trust in Jesus, in His death and resurrection, that's it. We're in the family. We're adopted. We're called son. We're called daughter. We're invited to call God father. And because of our trust in Jesus, nothing can change that. It's fixed. And yet, in the family, as we act as a part of the family... We have this ability to please our Father, to bring Him joy. Now, it's not that He's going to love us more. It's not that He's going to love us less. It's not that we're saved by faith and kept in by works. No, we're saved by faith alone. We're into the family because of Jesus. But we have this ability to live like the family that pleases our God and Father. So it raises this question. If that's the why, right? If that's the motivation for us, if that's what we believe, we're in the family because of Jesus— then what are the actions that we do? Well, we see it's referred to in verse 3, but in verse 3 it says it's God's will that you're sanctified. And th- this is saying in verse 3 that God wants this, right? So um, God wants us to be sanctified. And sanctified is a bit of a weird word, but basically all it means is to be holy or to become more and more holy. In, in fact, in some ways, or not in some ways, it is to become more and more like Jesus. So to be sanctified you could say that to be sanctified, it means to become more and more like the family you belong to. And so, so we're asking this question, okay, if we're in the family because of Jesus, what are the actions that we can do within the family that is our part of the family that can please our God and Father? What is our version of moving bricks? What's our version? What's the, what's the actions that we do? Well, well, we see this. Paul spells this out for us, and he gives us three things. And, and the first we see here in verse 3. He says it is God's will that you should be sanctified. There it is, to be holy, to be like the family. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before for God did not call us to be impure but to live a holy life. Therefore anyone who rejects us, uh, who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being but God, the very God who gives you his holy spirit. So what what are the actions that God calls us to do in response to being brought into the family? Well, he's going to point out 3 here. And the first we see in these, this passage, well, the, the three of this, sexual purity, the second is selfless love, and the third is respectable work. And we see the first here, sexual purity here, one of the actions God calls us to in the family of God is to live a life of holiness, of purity. Now, I know that when it comes to this issue, that this is complex and complicated. And that's why when we think about these three things, we're going to spend more time on the first one than the second two, on on sexual purity than, than selfless love and respectable work. But I know that this issue is complex. And I know that in our day and age, it's made even more so, right? We live in 2020 post, you know, the sexual revolutions of the 1960s. And so in our day and age, if you listen to our world around us, sex is a human right. So this is complicated and complex. And When it comes to issues like this, our temptation might be to kind of go, well, when God speaks about this stuff, it's outdated. You know, like the issues weren't issues back in that day, and now times have changed, and so let's throw out the Word of God, and, and we'll just change that and shift that. He didn't mean that when he was speaking about it there. There's a few problems with that. Firstly, the Word of God is the Word of God, so it's timeless and true for all time. But the second thing that's the problematic with that is that the day and age that paul was writing into was in some way similar to ours in fact i was reading about this this week that actually in thessalonica and macedonia sexuality was a massive thing and, and a massive issue in their society in fact um there's stories of uh, and this happened in many homes that men would have wim wives who would look after the kids who they could be intimate with then they'd also have slaves Right, because that was just a, a part of their culture that they lived in, and the slaves they could be intimate with as well. On top of that, you could go to temples, and prostitution within the temples was a thing. So sexual sexuality was massive back then. On top of that, homosexuality was an issue in that day and age as well. And so what this means is, right, sure, our society might be different to what it was a hundred years ago. But actually, when Paul was writing and when this was sort of written in the first place, the society wasn't that different to what it is today. So we can't throw out God's word. We have to take it for what it is. And so when it comes to this issue, we we have to ask this question. What does Paul mean when he says, avoid sexual immorality? What's he getting at when he says those words, avoid sexual immorality? Well, as, as we understand this, the, the word sexual immorality, it means kind of anything and everything, right? It's, it's all-encompassing, and it means kind of anything and everything that happens sexually outside of God's design within marriage between one man and one woman, and everything that happens within that marriage that's abusive or taking advantage of one another. We'll look at that a little bit in a moment. But that's basically sexual immorality, anything outside of God's good design for marriage or anything within that that's abusive or taking advantage of one another. In fact, the word sexual immorality, it comes from the Greek word porneia, which is where we get the word porn from. But porneia literally means kind of the junk drawer of sexuality. Now, we get that imagery, right? Because in our kitchens, all of us have a junk drawer where we put stuff in that drawer. and, And, you know, for us, it's the bottom drawer. We put stuff in the bottom drawer that doesn't belong anywhere else. you know. So for us, we've got like batteries in that, manuals there, old phones are in it, just anything that doesn't belong anywhere else. And this is kind of what the word is getting at. It's anything that exists sexually outside of God's design between one man and one woman. So, so what is it? It's everything sexually outside of that. So it's what happens when you're by yourself. It's lusts and fantasies. It's what happens when we look at porn or or you're looking at social media and you're scrolling through to find things or movies or TV shows that are explicit. It's whatever other apps that you search in and of yourself. It's what happens in relationships between friends, between boyfriends and girlfriends, between fiancés before they're married. It's what happens in open relationships. It's what happens in hookups. It's what happens on Tinder. It's what happens when we have those one-night stands. It's anything and everything outside of God's good designs. It, it's what happens in homosexual mar- uh, relationships. It's, it's also what happens within God's design of marriage that we see in, in verse 6, I think it is, where he refers to taking advantage or mis- uh, abusing one another. It's also what happens within marriage between one man and one woman that's abusive. Or that's taking advantage. And when it comes to this word porneia, it's talking about all of that. Anything sexually outside of God's design within the boundaries of marriage. And we're to take all of that seriously. All of it. Like we can't decide that one thing is worse than the other. We're to take all of it seriously. You know, like I know that for the last, like, I don't know, maybe 20 years, maybe it's longer than that, but at least in the last 20 years, for some reasons, Christians have decided that some things are worse than others on that list. You know, some things we've decided that we're going to publicly go after and not deal with the own things that are going on in our own hearts. I also know that for some of us or people that we know within the Christian walls, within the family, people are always asking, where's the line? And how far can I push that line? You know, I know within, you know, I've known people within Christian relationships who have done everything they possibly can before marriage except the final action of sex and think that it's okay. But this word, porneia, it's getting at all of it. And we're to take all of it seriously. In fact, Paul says, God will judge you for this. God sees what happens behind closed doors. He knows it and he holds us accountable for that. And so for the family of God, what this means is for the family of God, he calls us to a life of sexual purity. Now, I know this issue is complex. I know it's complicated. And I know that it, there might be a feeling or a sense of maybe it feels uncomfortable here. And I feel like when we look at this, it's it's kind of worth noting what he is saying and what he's not saying. There's almost some fine print for this. And so I got six quick things. That's almost the fine print of, of that. Six quick things. Number one, this is for the family of God. You notice that? Paul's writing to the family of God. He's writing to those who are Christians. When Paul came to Thessalonica, we saw this. He came and he spoke the gospel to them first and foremost. He wanted them to know Jesus. Paul didn't just go around from city to city trying to, you know, get them to deal with their morals. He was after their hearts. He wanted them to love Jesus. And from the position where they loved Jesus and they knew that he loved them, that's when he began to speak about what they did. Secondly, if you're hearing this and you feel like perhaps I'm a a bigot or I'm intolerant or that I don't love you, and this is an unloving thing to say, then I, I get it. I understand that. I understand how that, that's the feeling. I want to say, even if it doesn't feel like it, it is coming from a place of love. And I love you enough not to change the Bible, not to change God's Word to suit our context. And not only that, but, but if you've been mistreated, if Christians have made you feel like you're not valuable, or you're not lovely, or you're not worthy, and I'm sorry for that. God loves all people. He wants people to come to know him and trust in Jesus. That's the second thing. Third thing, there's no room for pride or arrogance in this. You know, the word pornea, sexual immorality, it gets at all of that, which means we can't walk around with pride or arrogance In this space, Jesus said, if you have lust in your hearts, you've committed adultery, which means we must walk with humility when we're addressing anything in this space, because we're not perfect. We must walk with grace in this. There's no room for for pride. Fourth thing, if you're rejecting this, know that you're not rejecting me, but God. Right? Like, you can reject me. (laughs) I mean, people do and have. But when it comes to this issue, right, this isn't my idea to speak on this. You know, like, in fact, if it was up to me, in many ways, we would have done something else. <laughs> There's lots of other things easier to talk about than this. But when it comes to this, this is God's Word. And, and that's what we believe here at Southside. We're going to preach through the Word of God. And so when it comes to something like this, and this is what Paul says in verse 8. He says, to reject this teaching isn't to reject man, but God. So, so know that. Number five, if you're hearing me say that you need to be perfect in this area or a particular orientation in this area or whatever else to be saved, then you haven't heard me. We're saved by trusting in Jesus in His death and resurrection alone. That's what saves. That's what brings us into the family of God. And then from that position of our security and worth and value, knowing what we're loved, that's when we pursue purity. Which leads us to number six. God is a God of grace and of compassion and of kindness and of forgiveness and who helps us in this area. God does not call us to purity and leave us alone in that battle. He empowers us by his Holy Spirit. He convicts us of sin and he helps us to move to purity. And I know that this is such a a thing that we need to be reminded of here, because I know that for some of us right now, some of us are feeling the weight of this. You know, some of us are feeling the conviction in this area when it comes to this issue. Some of us need to have some hard conversations after this service. Some of us need to confess our sin to the people we pray with and meet with. Some of us need to pursue that sort of stuff, but, but we have to be aware that as we pursue purity that God is gracious, He's compassionate, He's a God of forgiveness, and He's a God who helps us. This is why in verse 8, when Paul says, to reject this is not to reject man, but, but God, he says, the, the very God who gives you His Holy Spirit. And it feels left field there that he mentions the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit, Jesus describes as the helper. He's the one who's with us, who convicts us of our sin, but helps us move into purity. So He gives us the power to overcome this. If you are in the family of God, you've been given the Holy Spirit who empowers you and who helps you through this. The gracious, merciful Holy Spirit who picks us up when we fall down and works with us when we stuff up. God is a God of grace. So when we see this, right, we see the why. We see the motivation, what, why we're in the family, it's trust, it's faith in Jesus alone. We see what we're called to do. Well, we see the first thing anyway, it's, it's sexual purity. Now, as we keep moving through this passage, we see that Paul speaks about two more things. And we won't spend as much time on these two things, but we see two more things. And the, the first one of these, well, the second of the three, is he calls us to a life of selfless love. We pick this up in the the next verses. In verse 9, he says, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. So you see, Paul is going after our actions. Firstly, it's sexual purity. Secondly, it's selfless love. Now, I love this that he writes to the church about this, because this church in Thessalonica, they are a good church, right? This church love each other well. He says, you've been taught by God to love. And, and he says, we don't have any reason to write to you about this. Now, this taught by God, it's the work of the Holy Spirit to teach them to love like Jesus, selflessly, to lay their life down for one another. It's what John writes in 1 John four nineteen, where he says, we love because God first loved us. This is what he's getting at, selfless love. And yet he says, you guys are, are nailing this. And yet we urge you to do so more and more. Right now, that's crazy to think that through. And yet we understand why he does that because when it comes to the family of God, there is no love. There's no level of love when we've made it and there's no more love to give. No, he says to be a part of the family means you have a selfless love for one another and you do so over and over and over again until you see Jesus face to face. Now, what does this look like for us? Well, I I think we get this when it comes to our physical families, but perhaps not our spiritual families. Let me explain. We understand in our physical families what it means to selflessly love one another. In fact, I was listening to a a Conan O'Brien podcast randomly this week. If you know Conan O'Brien, he's like a a late night talk show host in America. I think he's got his own show called uh, The Conan O'Brien Show. He is a self-confessed narcissist, right? So he is all about himself. He loves himself. He talks about himself. Um, he, he's a self-confessed narcissist, but he was telling this story about when he had his first child. And he was in that hospital room, and the baby girl was born. He had a baby girl. And he said in that moment, despite being a self-confessed narcissist who's all about himself, when he held his baby for the first time, he looked at that baby and he said out loud these words. For the first time in my life, I said these words, I don't matter anymore. Now, what he's saying in that moment is not, I'm not worthy, right? It's not about my worth. It's not about my value. But he's saying, I love this child so much that I don't matter anymore. I'm willing to lay my life down for this kid. Now, parents, you might get that, right? If you're like me, maybe you don't have kids. Maybe there's this sense in which you don't understand this. But we do get that when it comes to our physical families, sometimes there's required of us to, to be loving in a selfless way you know it might be with looking after grandparents it might be looking after our own parents it might be in some other format but but in our physical families we know what it looks like to enter into that space and go i don't matter anymore but what would it look like if we had that attitude at church what would it look like if we brought that same love into the space with the people that god has united with us to god and to each other the people we call brothers and sisters What would it look like if when we entered church, you know, when we saw each other again or see each other online or whatever, whenever it is, when we see each other, we have this attitude, when we look at each other and say, I don't matter anymore. Not because I'm not worthy, not because I'm not valuable, but because I love the people God has placed in my church so much that this is my attitude. You know, can, can you picture that church? Can you picture a church that has that attitude I mean, people are going to be lining up to serve, wanting to pour their life out for one another. Can you imagine our conversations, what our conversations are going to be like if that's our attitude? Can you imagine the grace that we're going to show one another? The forgiveness we're going to show one another. Can, can you see that, how it's going to transform us if we can have this attitude like Jesus had towards us, that I don't matter anymore because I'm going to lay my life down for the sake of these other people. You see, this wouldn't just make a good church. It would. But this is what God calls us to. This is what He says. He says, if you're in the family, this is what it looks like to be in the family of God. So first is sexual purity. Second is selfless love. And then third of all, we see He calls us to respectable work. And we pick this up from the the next verse. We see, He says, I urge you to do so more and more. And then verse 11, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone the final aspect of what it means to be in the family and these things are not all exclusive right it doesn't cover all of life but the final thing it means for us is that we work we we work and as we work it's respectable now it's kind of cool here there's a throwback back to genesis and the three things he covers here, you know, in, in Genesis, when God made humanity, made Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, to be intimate with one another. He made them to be in relationships with each other. He made them to work even in Genesis. And here, there's kind of this throwback to those three things. And one of the things is is work. Get a job. And as you work, it's, it's respectable. Now, the, the context in Thessalonica is helpful here. In that day and age, if you were wealthy, if you were rich, part of what it meant to be rich is that you'd give money to the poor in fact it was like the honorable thing to do you would do this like wherever you were you just do this right that was your kind of duty your job and so what it meant is if you were poor if you didn't have a job you could just follow the wealthy people around and they would have to kind of give you money now you could do that right if you didn't like the idea of working you could do that but it wasn't respectable and since it wasn't respectable it affected the message of jesus and so, Paul here is speaking into that. And he's saying, don't no, just follow the wealthy around and leech off them. Get your own job. And as you work, it's respectable. Now, obviously, the times have changed a little bit. Um, you know, that's not the way it plays out directly here in our country, at least. But the principle's the same. And what Paul is going after here is laziness or idleness, right? So, he's not going after those of us who want to work, but we can't. You know, he's not going after those of us who have put out resume after resume, who have gone to interview for stuff they, you know, never thought they'd do, who, who don't think that they could stoop too low. They just want any job, whatever that is. He's not speaking to that. Nor is he speaking to those who work but don't get paid for their jobs. You know, like our, perhaps our parents, some of our parents, perhaps some of those who are, are retired. He's not getting after that. He's getting after those who don't work and don't want to work and are relying dependent on other people. He's saying it's actually a good thing for you to work. It's a good thing for you to get a job. And in this way, as you work, it's respectable to outsiders. Now, and I wonder as we think about this, you know, I wonder if this would be helpful for us. Because I know that so often when we think about work, it's a duty that I must do, that I don't want to do, and God doesn't want me to do. But what if we, you know, when we were getting in the car tomorrow morning, or when our work began tomorrow morning, what, 6 a.m. or whatever, what if we had this attitude that, that in this, I'm actually being obedient to God's call on my life? That in working, I'm, I'm doing what God has called me to do. What if we have this attitude that when we go to work, we see that this is actually a good thing for me to do? What if we see this as obedience to God's call and a good thing for us to do, and that as we do this, we see that in that way, as you drive to work, it's respectable just in and of itself. In getting in the car, it's respectable. You see, there's there's three things that he calls us to here. Sexual purity, selfless love, and respectable work. And so we see the why, why we do stuff. It's because God has loved us, because we have a trust in Jesus, in his death and resurrection. We've been brought into the family. We see what we do. Sexual purity, selfless love, respectable work. But what I love is the final thing we see in this last point here from Paul is that he, he touches on this idea that as we do this, it's not just the why and the what, but the impact we have. You see, he says, as you work, it's respectable to outsiders. See, there is this reality that when our lives, our actions back up our thoughts, that it has an impact in our community, that people actually see and savor Jesus. Now, I don't know why it is, but for some reason, we underplay this. We underplay how important it is that our actions back up our speech. I don't know why we do this, because we all know that experience. We know the experience when people have, you know, we try and speak to them about Jesus and they say to us, you know, I'll never look at Christianity because I can't stand that Christians are hypocrites. Like we get that, right? We've been in that experience. Maybe you've got friends or family who feel that way. Maybe you feel that way. We know that when our actions don't back up what we believe that it actually deters people. But here's the beautiful thing. When we do, when our actions back up what we believe it attracts. It draws people into the message of Jesus. And this isn't just true from what Paul's saying. This is backed up with research. In fact, um, a few years ago, there was a, a research group called McCrindle. In 2017, they did this research about what draws people in and what attracts people to faith and, and Christianity particularly. And they got the top three things. And I, I wonder, as you're sitting there, you know what what do you think the top things are that would draw people into Christianity? You know, I don't know what you think it would be. But here's what their research says coming in at number three with 12%. The thing that 12% of people were attracted to Christianity when they heard stories or testimonies about how people were changed because of their faith. That that was the third when they saw that their lives were different from what they believe, or, or from, you know, now their new beliefs. Coming in at number two, 13%. 13% of people said the thing that attracted them, drew them into Christianity, was a personal trauma or a life event. You know, and I'm praying that this pandemic might draw 13% of Australians into Christianity. That's a side point, because number one, the top thing that drew people into Christianity or to the message of Jesus with 16%, 16% of people, said that they were drawn into the message of Jesus when they saw people living out a genuine faith. Now that might surprise you, but it shouldn't because it's what Paul says. And it's what we see in the research, and maybe it's even what you've experienced in your life. When we live genuine lives of faith, when our actions back up what we say we believe, it has an impact on our community where people can see the message of Jesus. So we see the why. We do this. It's because we've been brought into the family because of what Jesus has done. We see the what we do. We live lives of holiness, of purity. And we see the impact that we have when we live out what it means to be in the family of God. People see Jesus. So let's pray that we do that. Let's pray. God, we ask that as we think about faith and works, Lord, that you would help us understand the motivation, the why we do anything. That you'd help us understand the what we're called to do, the actions we're called to do, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't get caught in making excuses, caught up in the, the, the difficulty of it, but that we would push into who you've called us to be. And we pray that as we do this, understanding this reality that we have this ability in the family of God to please our Father, that we would see that we can have an impact on our society and on our community where people will see and savor the message of Jesus. Help us do this more and more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.